When I was in fifth grade, there was a boy in my class by the name of Jim. And Jim liked to make my life miserable. He liked to bully me. Now listen, this is not any gym that you know. This is not any gym uh, around here, but we're just going to call this guy Jim the Bully. And Jim grew up with me in the little town of Marshville, Ohio. In fact, we went to Marshville Elementary School together for two years. And I was thinking back on that. I was able to actually find a picture of my old school. It's been torn down, but uh, I found this on the internet. Uh, the internet's amazing. Here you go. Um, this is just a school, uh, but we have a picture of it here. And it looks like a lot of the schools on the south side of Chicago might look, but it's a little bit smaller than some of them. But this is my school growing up. Jim the Bully went here as well. Now, Jim was two years older than me. He was bigger and stronger than me, but we were both in the same grade. And, and Jim used uh, to threaten me all the time when we were growing up. He, he'd tell me that he was going to hunt me down after school and beat me up. Now, he never actually beat me up terribly. I mean, he, he never punched me in the face. He never busted my lip or anything like that. But uh, sometimes he would push me to the ground. He'd punch me in the arm so hard that I would go home with bruises on my shoulders. He, he would cut in front of me in line. He would mock and tease me. He would steal my milk at lunchtime. Again, it wasn't a whole lot that I could do about this because he was a lot bigger, a lot stronger than me. And I didn't want to tell the teachers about this because he had convinced me that if I did, my life was going to get even worse. And so Jim found it entertaining. He found it his mission in life to bully me. I would think about Jim when I went to bed at night. When I woke up in the morning, I would think about him. I would think about him throughout the school day. For a while, he even would sit beside me in class, and he would tell me if I didn't give him the right answers for the test, he was going to take my life, which was really something that would mess with me when I was trying to study or trying to stay focused in school. I mean, have you, have you ever had a bully in your life? I know that a few of you have, and I, I did not like Jim at all. I, I, I would ride the bus uh, at home or home from school because I lived outside of the city, outside of the town. Jim, he would walk because he lived right in town. And so once I got on the bus, I usually was able to uh, be safe. I didn't really have to worry a whole lot because he wasn't around anymore. But one night after school, I was hanging out with a friend of mine by the name of Brad. And Brad lived in the town. And I stayed overnight at his house. It was about 6 o'clock that evening that we decided we were going to walk up to the corner store to get some snacks. And so there was only one corner store in the small town that we lived in. But Jim the bully was out riding his bike that night at the same time that we were walking to the store. We get to the store and he sees us from across the street. And he starts chasing us on his bike. He's riding on his bike. We're running. And we go running down the street, around the alley, um, uh, uh, down, uh, around the corner, uh, through some backyards, around some bushes. And we sneak into Brad's house just in the back door, just before Jim catches us. Now, Jim found out that I was a Christian. He used to tease me about that. He gave me a hard time about being a farmer, growing up on a farm. I, I, I don't know if any of you have experienced these types of things when you were younger, 
But I didn't like the way that Jim bullied me, the way that he treated me. Because, and because of that, I didn't really like fifth grade all that much. Well, there were a couple of eighth graders who lived in town as well, and they saw what was going on. I, I mean, Jim wasn't just bullying me. He was bullying a number of other people as well. And I don't remember uh, what those two eighth graders' names were, but I remember that one day they came to me and they said, hey, listen, let's meet up in the playground at lunchtime. We, we just want to teach you some things. We're going to teach you some karate. And they told me that they were black belts. So um, I, I look back on the situation a little bit. I don't think that they were black belts, and I don't think that what they were teaching me was actually karate, but they were bigger, they were stronger, they could punch harder than me, and so I listened to them. But they would teach me all kinds of different things, different stances, different punches, di different ways to defend myself. And then one day, I, I saw them go over to Jim the Bully after school, and they took him to the side, and they walked around the corner, and... They, they talked to him. I, I don't know what all they said to him in that moment, but, you know, they, they, um, they, they, I never had a problem with Jim after that conversation that they had. And I don't think it was so much because of my great martial arts skills or something like that, but I think, they had a, I think Jim had a little bit of a fear of these two eighth graders and what they were going to do to him if he messed with me. You know, even though that situation happened over 35 years ago in my life, I still remember that conflict. I still remember the inner turmoil that I felt when I was going through it. And I say that to say that if you've ever been bullied, I know a little bit about how you may be feeling. But listen, you don't have to be bullied to be in the midst of a conflict with another person. Even today, you might not call it being bullied, but maybe you're having a problem with some of your coworkers. Maybe they're throwing you under the bus in your board meetings, and um, you know they, they keep doing it over and over again. It seems to be wearing on you. you. You think about it at night, you think about it in the morning, you think about it on your way to work. Maybe others of you have a friend who has just walked away from you in a time of need. Maybe a mom or a dad who just seemed to have failed you. Maybe it was a friend who had you had confided in. You've told them something super important and then they turned against you. Maybe it was a coach or a teacher that didn't give you a fair shot at something who treated you poorly for, for no apparent reason. Listen, whatever you do in life, wherever you go, you are going to experience conflict with people at times. In fact, I would even believe and bet that today there are people here in this room who are experiencing some kind of conflict with another person in their life today. And as we continue on in this sermon series that we've been in, in the book of 1 Samuel, that we've been calling uh, a blast from the past, you, you know, we're looking at these practical life lessons that we can learn from this book. And I think that this subject of how to handle conflict in God's way is a very important lesson for all of us. Because we all face conflict in life, just like we're going to see how David faced conflict with King Saul. And so if you've got a Bible with you this morning, or you can grab one in the pew rack in front of you, but I want to invite you to join me in 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24. 
At this point in the story, David has been pursued by Saul on many different uh, occasions. In fact, in 1 Samuel, Saul is actually at one point using David as target practice with his spear. At another point, he is coming against David and his soldiers, and fortunately for them, he was diverted by some Philistines who came after him. And here in chapter 24, we see that Saul has handpicked 3,000 of his best and brightest soldiers, and he has pinned David into this cave with his 600 soldiers that David had. And David's back is against the wall in this moment. David has been trusting God. He's been doing the right thing in God's eyes, and God has been faithful. He's been delivering David. But in this chapter, we see one of the most interesting, detailed, and I believe often overlooked stories in all of the book of 1 Samuel. And I think that we can learn a lot of very valuable lessons about how to face conflict. First, uh, King Saul. Uh, he arrives at this area that's referred to as the Wild Goat's Rocks, which is where this story that we're going to be reading takes place. I want you to, uh, I brought a picture with me just to kind of help you imagine the scene here once. But we're going to put this up on the screen. And I, I just want you, I don't, we don't know exactly where this place was, the Wild Goat's Rocks. But this is a general idea of the vicinity of what this place looked like. Uh, this was a dry desert wilderness area with lots of rocks and mountains. And I guess it was common in that day to see goats roaming around on these stony mountains, which is where we get the name from, right? Well, in these, in these mountains, there are all sorts of natural caves. You can see a, a couple of entrances there to a few caves here in this picture. And we don't know specifically where this cave was or where this took place, but just, just kind of imagine for a moment, if you will, that David and all of his men are in one of these caves. It's got to be a fairly big cave, but Saul and his men, they come through this area and David and his men are thinking, you know what, this is the end for us. David, who, who, who's supposed to be the next king, is probably going to end up not being the king after all. Well, his men are sitting there in the cave, probably somewhat dejected as they're sharpening their swords. They're getting ready for this one last fight before they all die. This is where they are. You say, well, what does that have to do with me? I wonder, have you ever had your back against the wall and you weren't really sure where to turn? Whether it was a bully or a co-worker, a family member or a coach, a friend, a, a, a teacher, whatever it is, you felt like your back was against the wall and there was really nothing that you could do. Well, that's where David's at, and here's the lesson that I hope that we'll all learn here today. I want to put this up on the screen, but here it is. When facing conflict with another person, do the right thing and leave the outcome to God. When facing conflict with another person, do the right thing and leave the outcome to God. Literally, what you do is you let God take care of things. You leave it up to him. And that's what we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 24. 
I want to go ahead and read the first few verses here uh, of chapter 24. We're going to begin in verse 1. We'll put these words up on the screen as well. But you can follow along as I read this. Here's what it says. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. That's right, you read that right. Saul went into this cave, the Bible says, to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David rose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, There's so much in this chapter that is really good. But in these first four verses here, I I just want you to notice a few things here. The first thing is this, that that King Saul is with his troops. He leaves his 3,000 men behind and he goes into this secluded area by himself where he goes to the restroom. He goes to the bathroom. That's what the Bible says. And I just love it, don't you? I mean, the Bible shares it all, that um, it's the good, it's the bad, it's even the restroom breaks are present here. So King Saul, though, he goes into the cave, and he goes number two, that's what he does. And do you blame him? I mean, he's got 3,000 men with him. I would think he would want some privacy. And so he leaves his men, and he goes to relieve himself. But I want you to just think about this once. Saul goes to where he thinks he is in this secluded place in a cave. And as he goes into the cave, his eyes have not adjusted yet. He, he, he doesn't see what's, what all is in there. But he goes to the bathroom. And while he's going to the bathroom, 600 other men are witnessing all this, including David. The, the man who was all, has all of this power. He's the king. I mean, he's hunting down this uh, David and his men in order to kill them. And, and now he's in a very vulnerable place in the bathroom. And, and, and David has a prime opportunity to seize the throne. No pun intended. David's men are encouraging him to take Saul's life. They, they say, hey, you, you should do to him what seems good to you. And, and you blame them. I mean, if you were in a situation like that, if I was in a situation like that, we'd probably want to do the same thing, right? If we knew that we were going to die and that everything then turned around and we had this opportunity to get revenge, what would we do? Well, David, with 600 men watching this, does something that's very uh, just amazing. Uh, Somehow, he just quietly sneaks right over to Saul. He takes his sword. He cuts off a piece of his robe uh, rather than taking that sword and thrusting it through the body of Saul. Now, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, I, I, I mean, how quiet must David have been in order to do that? 
And how sharp must his sword have been? I mean, to be able to cut off a piece of Saul's robe without him even knowing it, without getting caught, pretty incredible. Also here, it's a big deal for another reason. I mean, this is the royal robe. This, this robe, it's very symbolic. It's a very important robe. Uh, last week, we, we read about how Jonathan took his royal robe and he gave it to David in an act of incredible humility. This robe that Saul has on, it's extremely significant. In fact, Bible commentator Robert Bergen, he said this, He said, this robe was to be whole and complete. By removing the corner of the robe, David made Saul's robe to be in a state of non-compliance with Torah requirements. Saul's most obvious symbol of kingship was made unwearable. In essence, David had symbolically invalidated Saul's claim to kingship. Bergen goes on to say... By cutting the robe of Saul, David was laying claim for the first time to the kingdom. But by one cut, David was taking steps to take the kingdom by his own means rather than by a gift from God. You know, we we do that a lot of times too, don't we? We're in a situation and we take the initiative, we take matters into our own hands. And it may not seem like a big deal. I mean, David just cut off a little piece of Saul's robe. I mean, how big is that? Sometimes, though, we cut people as well. We cut people with our words. We cut people on social media. We cut people in the office. We cut our family members. It may not seem to be a big thing, but I think that we can learn a lot from David here. And I love this because this goes to show that even David, isn't perfect. I mean, this guy, man after God's own heart, he makes mistakes as well, just like we do. And he makes a mistake here. He, he takes the initiative on his own. He goes and he cuts this robe of King Saul. Well, the first thing that I want you to learn here from this is that when facing conflict, you need to listen to your convictions. You need to listen to your convictions. Here's what it says in verse 5. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. That, That phrase, David's heart struck him, is an idea of his conscience bothering him. He had this guilty feeling after what he had just done. Verse 6, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Up until this point of conflict, David has always been faithful to Saul. He had uh, always served Saul in whatever way he could. Now, I I think that a lot of us would probably think that this wasn't a very big deal. But immediately after David cuts the robe of Saul, his conscience is bothering him. He's convicted that he had done the wrong thing. And I want you to think about that for a moment. When you cut at somewhat, buddy, someone that you have a conflict with, someone that you've been butting heads with, you don't ask God what to do. Rather, you just go ahead and you just do what you think is right. You say what's on your mind. When you do that, does your conscience bother you? Do you hear the voice that says, listen, that's not right. You see, that's what happens to David. 
Now, now what David did may seem relatively small, but as soon as his conscience bothered him, he had a choice to make. Am I going to let... My, my, am I going to feel the conviction on this? Am I going to do something about this? Or am I just going to say, well, it's no big deal and keep doing what I'm doing? You see, that moment was a time to turn and do the right thing or just keep right on going in the direction he was going. If he didn't stop the direction he was going in, it could have turned out so much worse than it did. And uh, yeah, with David... He listened, and he, he listened to this conviction that he had. He listened to the still, small voice from God. I wonder about you. How do you respond to conviction? Do you stop yourself like David did? Do you do the right thing? Or, or do you find yourself saying things like, oh, you know, it's not that, that big of a deal. I mean, things could have been a lot worse. Or, listen, I'm only human. We all make mistakes. God understands. I mean, you don't understand what they did to me and why I did to them what, what I did. You know, every person that I've talked to said that it was okay that I did it. Look, everybody else is doing it. It doesn't matter if you're in fifth grade, in high school, in college, or even later on in life. There's always times where we have an opportunity to respond with what God told us to do or to react in our own fleshly, man-made way to the things of life. At first, David responded in the flesh, but then he was convicted. And I, I think that we can all learn from what he does here. How will we respond in those moments, those seconds, when we feel the conviction of God in our lives? Listen, we live in a world where very few men and women live with conviction at all. Everybody does what is popular. Everybody does what feels good. Everybody does what, what their friends say is the right thing to do. But seldom do we listen to God and just do what he has said. You know, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus... You can boil it all down to this very simple principle. Listen and obey. It's just that simple. Listen and obey. If Jesus is going to rule in our lives, if he is going to reign as the king in us, then we need to listen and obey what he says. We need to be men and women of conviction. There's a second thing that we learn here in this situation that we see between David and Saul, and that is that when we face conflict, we need to lead with courage. We need to lead with courage. Look at what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 7. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Love the way that the Amplified Bible translates this verse. It says, So David strongly rebuked his men with these words and did not let them rise up against Saul. It's the idea that David kind of tears into his men here. You see, when you're a person of conviction and you're trying to lead people, you're trying to get them to uh, not follow the flesh, but, but, not, but, but to go in a different direction, a direction that is um, of the Lord, it's in that moment that you need to speak firmly the words of God. And sometimes you even need to get a little passionate about what it is that you're saying. 
This is no small matter. This is a kingdom that is at stake. And this is not just any kingdom. It's God's kingdom. David shows this great leadership in this moment as he stops his men and he says, listen, we need to do the right thing here. Now, I don't know what that looks like, uh, what it looked like in the cave. I mean, Saul is not too far away. I I, I imagine this exchange that's happening back and forth. And and if you've ever had this whisper yell before, if you've ever experienced that, I imagine that that's what's happening here. That like, David, you missed your opportunity. No, we're not going to hurt Saul. What? After all he's done to you? Here is your chance. He's the Lord's anointed. We're not going to touch him. And David stands up to these 600 men who are just ready to end Saul's life. You know, we learn a couple of things here. First, we, we need to lead when it's unpopular. Don't follow the crowd. Don't do whatever feels good in the moment. David, he, he doesn't ultimately listen to his men. He listens to the voice of God. And let me just tell you this, if you lead, there are going to be times when people are going to call you a coward, and you are not going to be very popular in their eyes. But as long as you follow the Lord, as long as you do what is right in his eyes, you'll be popular in God's eyes, and that's really the only thing that matters. Parents, there is a good possibility that in your own home, you are not going to be very popular when you do the right thing. But it doesn't really matter what little Johnny thinks. You just go ahead and do the right thing. Sometimes you're not going to be friends with your kids. And guess what? That's okay. Sometimes you're not going to be very popular at work. And that's okay. Sometimes you may lose a job over what's unpopular. You may lose a relationship with some people in your life who used to call you a friend at one time. And that's okay. At the end of the day, in the midst of the conflict, a man or woman of courage will do the right thing and leave the outcome to God. Lead when it is unpopular. As tough as that might be, there's a second thing that comes to light here in this situation as it relates to leading courageously, and it's this. this. Love your enemies. A man or woman of courage will love their enemies. And David here shows love and compassion and respect to his enemy. Look at what it says here in verse 8. Saul comes uh, into this cave. He does his business. He leaves the cave. And now David comes out of the cave. He comes to the edge of the cave. And here's what happens in verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called for Saul. My lord, the king. Then Saul looked behind him. David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. Picture this once. I mean, Saul hears somebody shout to him, Hey, my lord, the king! Turns around, and David there is bowing to the ground, but he he doesn't know who it is. He can't recognize the fact that it's David. David shows such respect, though, here. He shows a lot of honor for King Saul. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, well, good for David, but but pastor, you don't know my enemies. And I don't, but you don't know King Saul very well either. 
And in that moment, David surrendered the whole situation over to the Lord. He said, listen, I choose to forgive, not in my own power, but in God's power, I will forgive. And I am letting God have complete control of this situation to do whatever he chooses to do. David is a man of conviction. He's leading with courage. And right now, he is bowing down before a very evil king who is seeking to take his life. You know, here's what I found in life. It is easier to bow before those who are evil when we know that our king is not an evil king. When we know that he's in control, when we know that he's in charge. We can humble ourselves, we can be reverent, we can be respectful, even of people who we, we, we've been in conflict with or we are in conflict with when we realize that, that we are really submitting uh, to the power and control of God in our lives, that we can trust him with the outcome. Listen to what Jesus says, Matthew chapter uh, 5 and verse 43. He says, you have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. What Jesus is saying there is God loves everybody no matter how they've treated him. And because that's the character of God, that's the kind of behavior that we should have as well. David honors Saul as a human being. He respects him as the king that God has put in place. And so he bows before him. And what David says here is the longest dialogue that takes place in all of the book of 1 Samuel. Now, I want to go ahead and read this entire section here. I I wanted to just speak for itself as you listen to this. But we're going to begin in verse 9. Here's what it says. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hand. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. By my hand shall, uh, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord, therefore, be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. 
He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home. And David and his men went up to the stronghold. David bows down before Saul. Saul reaches out. He, he takes, uh, rather, David reaches out. He, he takes the initiative. He speaks to Saul. Saul responds in peace, which reminds me of what it says in one of the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 7 says this. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. Look, when you're doing the right thing, when you're pleasing the Lord, when you're loving your enemies, there are times when even your enemies will respond peacefully to you. Now listen, I know that this peace between David and Saul doesn't really last for very long. I mean, we're in chapter 24, you get to chapter 26, and Saul is chasing after David again. And you might be tempted to say, well, pastor, I mean, you just don't understand how this world works. I mean, he should have killed Saul while he had the chance. He should not have bowed down to Saul. I mean, that's just a way of showing weakness. Friends, God calls us to reflect him by honoring and respecting him and then just trusting him with the outcome in each step that we take in our lives. He, he, he may not deliver us the way that we want or in the time that we want, but he will take care of us. 1 Samuel chapter 26, we, we see a very similar scenario take place. I'm not going to read this to you um, I'm going to let you read it on your own. I'll just tell you a little bit about what takes place. It's not a cave, but it's actually a campground. And it's not a sword, but it's a spear. But, but David, in 1 Samuel chapter 26, is more resolute. He's more strong as a leader than he was just two chapters earlier in chapter 24. And, and, and this is what I just want to say here. When you begin to walk in your convictions and you are a man or woman of courage... You will experience God's power at work in you, and you will more and more begin to live out the faith that God has given you. And so when you get to chapter 26, you see that David is a very different person. He speaks with much more boldness. He is walking with conviction. He is living out courage. And, and this is the third thing that I want you to see here today. When facing conflict... Lean into God's promise with conviction. Lean into God's promise with conviction. Here's what uh, it says, David, uh, this is what David says to Saul in chapter 26 and verse 23. He says, the Lord rewards 
every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. David says, my life is precious in the sight of the Lord, and he will deliver me out of whatever it is that I'm going through. Listen, I just want to say this. If you follow in the ways of the Lord, he will deliver you out of whatever it is that you're going through today. It may not make sense to you right now, but he will deliver you. What happens to David is that he does become the king. He receives the kingdom. Now, I'm not saying that you are going to be a king. I'm not saying that you're going to be a queen. But for followers of Jesus Christ, we are promised that we will receive a kingdom. And isn't that good news? In Jesus Christ, we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And listen to this. We are joint heirs with him. We are sons and daughters of his. He he has an inheritance waiting for us that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And I know that that's something that's coming one day in heaven. But I also believe that if we live out these principles, we can experience some of those blessings. We can experience some of that deliverance right now here in this life. Listen, when I think about loving my enemies, when I think about facing people who are facing persecution, when I think about being bullied or being all alone, I'm drawn to a story that I heard a few years ago about a church in Indonesia. It took place in a little village just outside of a big city where these believers had gathered together to worship on a Sunday morning. Out of nowhere, suddenly they're attacked by a group of radical Muslims. Many of them were killed, women, children, as well as leaders in this church. After a few weeks had gone by, they uh, came together again. And they, they did what believers do. They, they came back and they worshipped their king. The radical Muslims in this area came back as well. And this time, they not only burned the church to the ground, but many of the believers inside that church were killed as well. Over a couple hundred people were killed in this. Well, the leaders who remained in that church, they came together with some other believers and Every time I hear this, it just strikes me about what it is that they did. They took an offering in order to rebuild the church. They, 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 as they're taking this offering, God speaks to them. And he tells them that they're to take that offering and to give it to their enemies. Those who had killed them. Those who had destroyed what they had. Well, they, they take this money they, that they were going to use to rebuild their building and they, they go and they give it to the Muslims who had burned their, house, their building to the ground and had killed many of them. They gave it to them. Well, when the Muslims uh, get this, receive this gift, they begin to weep. And, and a number of them came to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, the imam of that community came uh, to faith in Jesus. He gave his life to Christ. Friends, in the midst of great tragedy, this little church in Indonesia shows us What can happen when we love our enemies? And not only were they able to see their enemies come to faith in Jesus Christ in that moment, 
But they were able to see a little glimpse of what heaven's going to be like. Look, there's just something that happens when we respond to our enemies with love. That God in his mercy shows up and he delivers in incredible ways. Listen, I know this is a tough message. It's a tough message for me. But I can tell you this. There is a promise that awaits God's children. And when we do the right thing, God will deliver. I don't know what you're facing today. Maybe it has to do with a coworker. Maybe it's a, a family member relationship that you're, that you're having difficulty with. Maybe it's somebody who used to be a good friend of yours. Maybe it's a neighbor, a classmate, a teacher, uh, whatever it is. You're here this morning and you're just feeling this conflict. You're feeling this tension very uh, personally. And I know that it's tough, but there's only one way that we can move forward. And that is to trust the Lord to obey the Lord, and to leave the results in his hands.